0: Thanks for downloading the Humanities Institute of Ireland podcast. This podcast features recordings of academic papers from events hosted by the Humanities Institute of Ireland in University College Dublin. For more information, go to www.ucd.ie HII. In this episode, as part of the Distinguished Guest Lecture Series, a lecture by Professor Bob Holfelder, he is Professor of History at the University of Colorado and has published many articles and chapters on ancient seafaring and maritime archaeology and is the author of King Herod's Dream Caesarea on the Sea. He has edited several volumes including the maritime world of ancient Rome. His lecture was entitled Poseidon's Deepest Secrets Deepwater Archaeology in the Mediterranean. My interest in maritime archaeology I guess it comes from an interest I had in maritime life in the classical world when I started graduate school, I thought this would be an interesting discipline or a, or a research avenue to follow. And as those of you who are in, in classics know, it didn't take me very long to read most of what has come down from the ancient writers about maritime activities. It's something that uh, there's not much great detail, and certainly not detail, the kind of detail that I want. How did one build a ship? How, did, how was trade conducted? What were the trade routes? On and on, <coughs> material's not there. So I figured that within a month I could probably read the entire body of literature that's come down, and then I wondered about the rest of my career. It didn't seem that that, that was not an auspicious beginning. But fortunately for me, at uh, the same time that I was looking to uh, to study this particular aspect of classical civilizations, maritime archaeology had begun. It's not that old a discipline. I'll be talking about it in just a minute, and That became my passion and by a series of very lucky steps along the way I've been involved in uh, maritime archaeology now for, well, for my entire life and have had an opportunity to work in 13 Mediterranean countries and uh, 50 plus excavations uh, underwater or on uh, coastal areas. So I've been very, very fortunate indeed. The Mediterranean, in other words, has become my archive and my library, and that's not a bad place to go every summer. I think we'll agree on that. But I think, as you also uh, know, that uh, it really wasn't until uh, the uh, period after World War II and when scuba gear was developed, uh, maybe in the mid-50s, that uh, oceanographic uh, researchers of all shapes and sizes were able to use scuba gear uh, to facilitate their uh, study of the marine environment using this equipment. It was possible to perhaps look at 3 to 5% of the ocean floor, uh, but most of the rest of the ocean was simply not available to those using only scuba gear. Uh, it has been only recently uh, that the hardware that has been developed for oceanographic research by the, our various navies of the world and also by the oil and gas industry has become available to a maritime archaeologist like myself. So the deep waters of the Mediterranean and elsewhere are now open to us. And uh, we will be quite a while before we are using state-of-the-art hardware that's available to, ocean, to oil companies now. I would say that we're now using state-of-the-art equipment that was available in the 1980s, or early 90s. It's just very expensive. In the United States, we like to talk about this trickle-down theory. Well, uh, the sophisticated equipment now available hasn't quite trickled down yet to us. But what we have is sufficient in many cases to do what we need to do. Now, it's difficult to, uh, (coughs) oops, this way, ah, there we are, to date the beginning of this of the discipline of maritime archaeology. We, again, those of you who are classic a uh, background in classics, know stories that have come down to us from Herodotus Ascalius, uh, a, a diver who was pressed into service by the Persian king Xerxes, recovering treasure that had been lost when uh, as part of the Persian fleet smashed into the rocks on the Magnesian coast. And then, after having done that, he defected to the Greeks. And one of the stories that Herodotus relates is that he swam five miles underwater get to the Greek fleet and then Herodotus puts on the side saying that's what they say but I think he came by boat too. <laughs> um, we have we have him we also have examples I could give you many of uh, the use of, uh, of, of divers and combat activities during the Athens the Athenian invasion of uh, Sicily and, and their siege of Syracuse uh, this seems to be one of the earliest examples we have of this and so on. Uh, I guess my point is that uh, To the ancient, to the Greeks and the Romans, uh, the seafloor was not a totally alien environment. Uh, We have accounts uh, that suggest that it was possible for divers to work down to 120 feet, according to the Rhodian Sea Law, which covers uh, salvage operations. Those of you who are swimmers, think about free diving to 120 feet. I might be able to do it one way. i uh, <laughs> come up. So it's really quite remarkable. But this, I show you this slide because this was happening in antiquity. Well, some of you know this. This is from, uh, this was found, um, or it now is on display in the museum at Ostia, uh, at the Tiber River, the port of, of ancient Rome. And it was a uh, relief that captured a moment which apparently had great import for the people living there. Fishermen, you can see on the the right, had pulled from the sea a statue of Hercules. And because this was obviously a gift from the gods, a temple was built, hauling statues from the sea. The most, the simplest type of salvage operations back in antiquity and continuing right to today. We still know of, in the last couple of years, a wonderful statue has been pulled up from the ocean floor off the coast of Sicily. The sea is still giving us treasures this way—hardly archaeology, but salvage—and to be sure, maritime archaeology started as salvage. I'm just picking out highlights along a long path here, but I would say that for most most people in the cl- in the world of classical archaeology would say that the discovery of the shipwreck at Antikythera. A small island, as you can see, between mainland Greece and Crete, uh, in the beginning of the uh, 20th century, 1900, uh, by a Greek sponge diver uh, named Elias Stavridis, who had been working the sponge banks off the coast of North Africa. He was from the island of Ciment, which is close to the Turkish shore in the Aegean. He was on his way home when a storm came up, and he was he sought refuge in the lee of the island of Antikythera, the winds were blowing from the south, and since he had never been sponge diving there, he took advantage of the opportunity and sent his lead diver, uh, a man named uh, uh, Demetrius Kandas, uh, was sent down in a state-of-the-art diving equipment, which you see up there. Oh, I do have a pointer, it's obvious. Uh, the hard helmet diving, which uh, which had been developed in the, in the 1830s and had finally got into sponge divers, and this was, as I say, state of the art equipment you know. for them. And the, uh, as soon as the diver touched down on the ocean floor, yanking on the safety rope to be brought to the surface immediately because he had come down in an environment he didn't know. And when he was brought to the surface and looking at his face through the helmet, and the reports that the man with eyes rolling in his head, he was terrified, took off the bronze helmet, and he said, I've been attacked by demons, demons, hands reaching out from, from the ocean floor well, what were Well, who what were the demons? He couldn't go down again, but the captain put the suit on, went down, and they had stumbled upon a treasure ship, looted materials being brought back from either Greece or uh, Asia Minor from, uh, during the time of Sulla in the first century BC, and the ship had run into difficulties in what the Hellenic Center for Marine Research, uh, their major oceanographic research institute, says is the most dangerous waters in all of Greece. Well, this was the, this again, 1900. Sir Arthur Evans is working in Knossos. Uh, great discoveries have been made by Schliemann. The world was suddenly realizing that archaeology, that there, was, there were things to be learned from the silent earth, and in this case, actually from the ocean floor. So in some ways, it became, it became the iconic um, project, marking, I think, the beginning of I say the beginning of maritime archeology span in the Mediterranean. Interestingly, and of course you can see, if you go to the National Museum in Athens, there are several magnificent bronze statues and they were the products of the salvage operation conducted first in 1900, then again in 1901 uh, using Greek Navy divers as well. And of course, some of you have heard of the Antikythera Mechanism, possibly the first computer that's overstating you a bit that was found in antiquity. I might just add as an aside that the summer of 2010, last year, last summer, I didn't get to go to Antikythera, but I was one letter away from it. <laughs> I had, I, no archeologist has ever visited this site. I don't know what's left down there. Uh, Cousteau, Jacques Cousteau was there in the 70s to do one of the video stories, television series. Uh, the video was the only thing that resulted from his work there. I did see it and I saw divers, not archeologists, but divers hammering away with chisels and hammers, breaking up masses of pottery, looking for statues on the ocean floor. And I also know from the video that he found some hull and ripped pieces of wood brought to the surface and let's uh, and all the while Jacques was still with Jacques Cousteau and his voiceover saying, sometimes our divers found nothing. <laughs> I'm looking at this massive potter saying, how can it be that much pottery? Is there more than one shipwreck right there? So I had plans to go back and do a, with the, with the equipment that we have, and you'll see some of it in a little while, after I get through my introduction, uh, it, is, it would be possible on, in I'd say five days at most, to go over the area, the site of the ancient shipwreck, do some sort of a three-dimensional map of whatever's left, and then go down into the deep waters, it's on a slope, with uh, right next to the island, where materials were lost as they were being hauled to the surface by the uh, chaps on the kaiki, lines parted and statues that had just about breached, come out of the water, and then the line broken down, they tumbled into the abyss, which was beyond the depths of chaps where suits like this, well, it's not beyond our reach now. So the idea would be to go down there and take a look. If there are any more statues like this, waiting to be discovered. And the one more point is that the Antikyther mechanism itself came from a large round ball of concretion. Uh, it was called a boulder, and it was brought to the surface of 1901 just by accident. There were several others on the site that had been divers that put lines around them and pulled these boulders off into the abyss to get them off the shipwreck site itself. One was brought to the surface and its mechanism was found in it, as well as some other bronze statues. I lost sleep. I lose sleep over wondering about those other boulders that have tumbled down into the abyss. I had money. This is expensive operation. I had a real estate developer in Las Vegas who had money for me because he had tucked it away. This year when I said, well, how about trying it in the summer of 2011, he asked me for money. <laughs> He's falling <laughs> hard times but it was there and I had endorsement from the American School of Classical Studies. I needed one letter from the interim director of the Ephoria of Underwater Antiquities and everything would have been fine and she wouldn't send it to the Supreme Council. An interim director in tumultuous times, the best way of surviving was to make no decisions. We understand that. Anyway, it's there, perhaps uh, an opportunity will come again. But this marks the the beginning, oops, can't use this one. And of course, uh, with the use of scuba, uh, during the 20th century, we were able to find shipwrecks in relative shallow water, and also to explore uh, submerged habitation sites. Uh, On the left is a slide of divers looking at a large concrete block. Uh, That was found at Caesarea and I'll have far more to say about that. But since the discipline as it evolved into two parts, not necessarily exclusive, but shipwreck archaeology in shallow waters down to 180, 200 feet, and then uh, the uh, survey of habitation sites, harbors, or villages that are now uh, underwater. That's the way it's divided more or less. During the course of the 20th century, we moved from Demetrius Kandas and Ilias Dadiades and their suits, thank God I never had to wear one, uh, to searching the ocean floor with nuclear submarines. This is the NR-1. It was uh, developed by the U.S. Navy during the Cold War, and it placed listening devices on the ocean floor around the world so that the U.S. and its allies could listen to the movements of Romans, of uh, Russian submarines. After the end of the Cold War, uh, this vessel then became available to scientists, uh, oceanographic work of all kinds, and it has been used by Bob Ballard, who is, has very, very tight connections with the Navy. He was a Navy officer himself, and uh, they have discovered amazing things. The NR-1 certainly has not been looking for ancient shipwrecks, but it has found many. It still, until about six months ago, when it was decommissioned, uh, it was doing various types of work for the U.S. Navy, uh, classified work. But they discovered things like this. We're looking at uh, a shipwreck site found off the coast of Israel, um, uh, two Phoenician wreck sites. So that's the maturation of the discipline, if you will, from, from sponge divers to nuclear submarines. As we enter the 21st century, amazing new things are happening, which I will get to in just a minute. Now surprisingly, our main source of information about ancient shipwrecks in the Mediterranean, with all of the hardware that has been developed and with the technology that's represented in the NR-1, is a gentleman on the left, a fisherman, a man who goes out to sea every day uh, in the Greek waters and finds things. Sometimes. He lets the government know. Sometimes he doesn't. Uh, The government, of course, is trying to get fishermen to turn antiquities in. They offer a a nice bounty. And uh, George Sakalas lives up near um, in the northern part of the Aegean, not too far from Mount Athos, uh, had found during one of his fishing expeditions several bronze helmets uh, that, uh, again, suggested that perhaps there might be a warship somewhere in that area. And a project I was involved in, in the early part of this decade, while working with the uh, the FRE of Underwater Antiquities and the Hellenic Center for Marine Research, was looking for sites described by Herodotus where ships went down in storms or battles during the uh, Persia's invasion of Greece in the early fifth century B.C. Certainly, we know that off the coast of Mount Athos, um, uh, in, 19, in 492, a great fleet was lost by Darius, um, about 300 or so ships, as the guess of Herodotus, uh, caught in the north wind, which blew the ships into some rocky prominence sticking out of Mount Athos itself, and the ships were lost. So this was a place we were looking, and it so happens that George found some helmets there. Uh, when we, we wanted to talk to him, again, the problems of the Greek uh, administ- uh, administrative bureaucracy, the effort uh, of underwater antiquities had never been able to see this helmet or the helmets found by George because they were under the jurisdiction of the Byzantine nephoria and they didn't communicate very well. But she had a Xerox copy of what they might look up like. That was in a, a newspaper article. That struck me as odd, but that is, after all, Greece. Um, we found out, she found out where George lived. Uh, we were on a major, a large research vessel, which you'll see a little later on, the Ageo, 62 meters long. She decides to call his village and let him know that we want to talk to him. This was a funny scene. Uh, there are not, this is a tiny little village of about 30 people. And when uh, she found a phone number for the a taverna in town, and she called it and said, I want to talk to this gentleman. And there's a, again, great, confusion at the end of the line. My God, someone from Athens, official of the government, wants to talk to George. Oh, no. I wonder what they know that they shouldn't know. George turned in the helmets. And I'm sure his neighbors were saying, but the other things that he's found that he never told anybody about, how did they get to find out? It's a great story. She finally got in touch with his wife and his wife says, I don't know where he is. I don't know where he is. He's either fishing or he's in a taverna. Just tell him that I'll be calling back in 15 minutes. Find him and I I need to talk to him. That was pretty scary stuff. Fifteen minutes later, she called back and there was George. So said, we're going to come and pick you up because we want to talk to you about the place where you found the helmets. And he said, well, you can't possibly get your ship in here, the, the little harbor. We'll send Zodiacs for you, no problem. Well, I remember looking at binoculars as we came as close as we could before launching the Zodiacs. There were all the villagers on the beach shaking hands with him as if he's all, (laughs) I'll (laughs) never (laughs) see you again, George. Nice knowing you, good luck. And uh, he's picked up, brought out. He's nervous as can be. He's never had a confrontation with a, a ranking official of the Greek government before. Comes on board, very nervous. It took a while to convince him that we really did want to know where he found the helmets, and that's it, nothing else. And as soon as that really sunk in, and the man realized that he was now the center of attention, Chest got puffed up, and come out here. And we asked him, "Well, oh, George, where did you find the helmets?" He said, "Off shipwreck point." <laughs> looking at the maps, there's no shipwreck point on the charts. He said, "Everybody knows this is where the Persian ships went down." So uh, anyway, we didn't, you know, we haven't, we didn't find. we were looking for warships. We found other ships, but warships. We may never find one, but we were hoping we might find at least part of one in this area. But George. Was helpful, but we didn't find the ship from which that was in any way associated with the helmets he found. But fishermen, uh, fishermen, and now I also found that chaps who run scuba stations in Greece and Turkey and Cyprus and everywhere else—again, men or women who every day spend their working hours in the uh, sea—know a lot about what's there. And of course, again, the problem is to tell someone like myself what's in it for them. If they share their information with me, um, the other source of information, uh, next to George, the octopus. This came as a surprise to me, but I had I had no idea before I started doing deep water archaeology that an octopus is an antiquarian. Loves to collect antiquities, and a, a, a nest of uh, an octopus will very often be a clump of antiquities. And if you see this cluster of broken potsherds. On a floor of the, of the ocean that's otherwise filled with just plain barren mud, there's a good indication that he, that there must be a shipwreck or shipwrecks nearby, unless he had figured out a way to buy it on eBay. <laughs> and sometimes, if the octopus is lucky, he hits a hole pot and then moves in. This is an a, an octopus a home. This is a, an elegant condo, if you will, compared to just a nest. And he's collected materials, you look very carefully, you see one right here, this straight bit of bronze. The, what looks like a uh, plastic, piece of plastic sticking out is in fact a sea worm. And as soon as we started fooling around, the sea worm also pulled in its tentacle and was living in here. But that piece of bronze was very intriguing. We were able to lift the pot with the permission of the uh, F4 of Underwater Antiquities who was on board uh, with us. And we discovered that it was the end of a hoplite spear, the business end made of iron and a bronze butt spike that they could put the spear into the ground when they were not uh, using the spear. And it was also a secondary weapon system if they needed it. Uh, we came into Kavala one night, Kavala in northern Greece, and I ran to the nearest cyber cafe to look up what I could find about butt spikes. And <laughs> I discovered a whole new world I yes. did not know existed, <laughs> and people were rushing over from other computers saying, Oh, look at this. Um, I decided that's perhaps not the way to search for information about this. It was an interesting moment. Uh, so, uh, at the dawn of the 21st oops, it says, At the dawn of the 21st century, deep water archaeology remains a nascent discipline. We can conduct pre disturbance. Uh, surveys on shipwrecks, as you can see. But we really haven't developed a way to excavate a shipwreck. I don't know whether or not we ever will have to excavate completely a shipwreck, let's say at 600 meters, 300 meters. Perhaps someone will decide to try to do that, if it's the right ship. And if Palma had a catalog of ships, we have a catalog of ships, missing ships, things we know very little about. If we happen to find an intact Minoan ship or a Mycenaean ship, we might try to figure out how to do it. But we can do probe trenches, if you will, now. But what is more important, what I've been working on recently, is to try to develop a protocol for finding shipwrecks. The Mediterranean is a big sea; It's 2,200 miles approximately in length and and 500 miles at its widest point. Where do you look for shipwrecks? Most of the shipwrecks that have been found, and many have been, and I'm sure it's true in Irish water as well, found prim- primarily by people who were doing other things, by accident if you will. That doesn't seem like a good way to, to conduct one's research. Is there a way of actually locating shipwrecks? How do we find them? And that's been what I've been working on as you'll see. Now I'm going to talk a bit about the work off at Dead off Crete. Um, And the idea was to try to search the maritime corridors or we might call them sea lands. We have a rough idea where they were. To some extent, they're dictated by winds and currents uh, in the Mediterranean. Uh, Given the limited technology of ancient seafaring, uh, we have a pretty fair idea how ships had to sail. Uh, But unlike today, uh, when a captain of of a, Super freighter can just set his course and away it goes, and he doesn't have to worry about winds and tides or anything else. Of course, the ancient mariners couldn't do that, uh, so we don't know what exactly was the route, for example, from Minoan Crete to Egypt. I uh, had a straight line here. This is certain part of the corridor. But our idea is, if we can search systematically in the areas where we think major trade routes occurred, perhaps we can find ancient shipwrecks. That's a start. And that's what we're trying to do off the uh, coast of Crete. This is, the, this is a project that also, unfortunately, is on hold for the time being because of lack of funds, but we'll continue this in a not too distant future, I hope. Now, map uh, gives you some idea of the ocean floor between Crete and Egypt. Notice right next to Crete how, how rugged the landscape is. And of course, you can pretty much see the fault line of the African and Eurasian plates colliding right here. And I was surprised at how deep the water is right next to Crete. My goodness, in place that goes down to almost uh, 10,000 feet from the deepest water in the Mediterranean, right next to the shore, within sight of shore. Now, we have to be careful not, well, we would like to look everywhere, but given the technology we have now, if we look in an area where there's so much geological activity going on, and so much geology, if you will, We will not find anything, we'll have to be really lucky because the equipment we have, particularly our various types of side scan sonar, will locate targets, but if there's too much geology around, we won't, we'll have too many targets and we won't know what's anthropogenic and what's natural. Um, But we had permission to work with the Greeks close to shore, so that's where we started. This is an area that is of particular interest to me. This is an area, uh, uh, called the Herodotus Abyssal Plain. It's a, a very large mud, plain mud floor area, very deep part of the med, it's, it's about 10,000 feet. And uh, we know from work done by a, another company that does um, classified work for the U.S. Navy, they were looking, they were working with the Israelis looking for the remains of a submarine called the Dakar that had gone down in 1968. And uh, in searching in this general area, they found, they did find the um, fantail of the, of the submarine. They also found a whole series of ancient shipwrecks, including one really intriguing one. That's at 10,000 feet. It's the, from the best of my the only Hellenistic freighter we've found that filled with uh, amphorae from uh, the region of Pamphylia. But it's at 10,000 feet and, again, Another complication, it is exactly in the middle of the overlapping exclusive economic zones of five countries. Uh, What a nightmare that is. I'm trying to work myself, work my way through that, and of course, coming from the United States, we don't believe in international treaties. We haven't recognized the Law of the Sea or the UNESCO Convention on this, which complicates things even more. Uh, but there are some interesting things there in our survey. Hopefully we'll go right over that and maybe we can recover uh, information about some of these shipwrecks that were found. The company that found them has been very, very secretive about where they are located. But there we are. But now to our, uh, to our work in Crete. Here's areas we've done in, in, in the black in two, uh, two, uh, two, uh, 2007, 2008. And notice the red areas where we wanted to work in, t- in 2009, which was our last season of work. Well, we had permission to do it. We were leaving uh, the port of Heraklion, and we got word at the last minute that the areas where we wanted to survey were suddenly off limits to us because of NATO submarine exercises. So, at the last minute, we had a change. The ac- expedition was mounted. We had funding, so we started to look. Uh, as you can see where the area is in 2009. Again, we found shipwrecks, but not the ones we were looking for, and we found um, a debris trail. And this is really very important to us. Think about uh, your M roads here. If they were suddenly to disappear in several thousand years from now, people looking for the, the road system of, of Ireland in the, in the 21st century, they might not find the roads, but they might find trash along the sides of the roads, marking where the road was. This happens in the sea as well. Uh, we can find trash, things that have dumped over the side, fallen off the side. Uh, the ancients didn't periodically throw statues overboard, by the way. But sometimes one might have tumbled in. Certainly amphorae would tumble in, and also broken pieces would tumble in. So it is really quite interesting. You, we can actually, we now realize we can define maritime corridors by finding the Debris trail, which again will limit our search, which is terrific. That's something we, we were able to determine in our work uh, off Crete. Our research vessel is the Ageo, as you can see. It's the flagship of the Hellenic Center for Marine Research, 62 meters, and like all oceanographic research vessels, uh, the business end is the stern, a large lifting crane necessary to bring to lift whatever the search equipment will be, whether it's submarines or remote, uh, remotely operated vehicles but they must have a large working area. And this ship works very well, even though it's pretty much at the end of its useful life. Uh, This is the nerve center of a a deep water maritime archeological project. I have been scuba diving for several decades now. It took me a long time to realize that maybe this is the way to go because I can pursue my, uh, my research interests without getting cold, without getting wet, Uh, but I do spend a lot of time staring at computer screens. Now, when a research vessel goes to sea, no matter what it is, it's too expensive not to be operating 24-7. And a ship develops its own rhythms, has its own time, and uh, everything is done in shifts. And in theory, you work one shift and you have two off, so work four and sleep for eight, but it never really works that way. Uh, It's more like work for eight and sleep four, but uh, what you're doing is you're spending time looking at what the robots you have sent down to the ocean floor are seeing. And it's not just an archaeologist, it'll be a marine geologist and also a marine biologist. Three of you will be sitting there because something of interest will come up we want, because we're looking at sections of the ocean floor that no one had ever seen before. There were things to be learned. Um, So it's been interesting for me and it's been a high learning curve sitting next to some of the world's leading um, uh, marine geologists uh, listening to their responses to what (coughs) they're seeing. I see nothing but what seems to be empty mud and other people are getting very excited about it. And I suddenly realized one time I said, I was working, I uh, I asked, what's all the excitement about? And this chap said to me, it's the first time I've ever seen the Mediterranean shoreline at the peak of the ice age. And uh, so really? <laughs> still, I see mud. Uh, but, he, but he then pointed out to me, see, this is, this is beach sand. This is beach rock. And this is, this is what it was like when it was 450 feet lower than it is now. And I got a bit excited about that. I have more trouble getting excited about the benthic uh, biological life, which I can't see at all, little holes in the mud. But again, biologists can see something. But so it's been interesting for me, as they say, a high learning curve, and as Phil mentioned, interdisciplinary interdisciplinary, to be sure. Um, Okay, so the first thing you do, we start out in our protocol now for looking for shipwrecks, is to make a multi-beam survey of the search area. Uh, Now notice areas that had not been done here, but we're in a sense creating a map. And you might say, well how come this hasn't been done before by the Greeks? That's a good question, but it costs a lot of money to put their research vessel uh, out to sea, about 30,000 U.S. dollars a day. And there are large sections of territorial waters that have not yet been surveyed. So the first thing is to figure out what the bottom looks like. You want to find a space where there isn't too much geology, in other words, where the chances, if you find sonar targets, are going not to be natural rock formations. So that's the first thing you do. It, 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 multi-beam survey doesn't take you very long at all, a couple of days. And here we've created a map, Let's see where we are again. And this area, you know, a that drops off into a very deep abyss on either side. But this essentially is a mud volcano. And it's, it's in depths of water, and these are meters where our equipment can work. The nautical, six nautical mile limit thing is turned out to be very important for us because, um, again, given the ongoing tensions between Greece and Turkey, particularly over the entrance to uh, the Dardanelles and the fact that in places uh, Turkey and Greece are separated by about 150 meters of water, uh, both countries have decided quietly to recognize only six nautical miles as their territorial waters. Under the uh, law of the sea they could in fact claim up to 12, but 12 nautical miles would create very serious difficulties and they both agreed to stay with six for the time being, reserving the right to extend it if – certainly if natural gas is discovered in the Aegean, and, and certainly both countries are looking for it. Now, what we found out, again, before we left Heraklion, we got a, a, a cable, I guess it was, not even an email, a cable, old fashioned cable, from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Greece saying, you can't go. Why? Because word had gotten out that we were going to be doing this in a Greek research, even though it was an international team, but in a Greek research vessel, and the concern was that this was a backdoor way for the Greeks to extend their national territorial waters by working with this vessel. And we had two very anxious days before this was worked out, and we finally got to go ahead, ahead, but make sure stay outside of the six nautical mile limit for some reason, which of course we did. Overlapping exclusive economic zones, possibility of international incidents involving uh, territorial waters. I didn't sign on for this when I was in graduate school. And anyone who was thinking about maritime archeology span now, I would say maybe having a minor interest in maritime law might not be a bad idea. it's been very strange, but here we are. Once, once this, once the map has been done and we know where to look, then we start sending down our fish. All these side scan sonar uh, equipment, whether it's old or new, they're all called fish. The one on the left here is is a, a an old version that we use, uh, and what it does, uh, it it picks up objects on the so the sonar radio beams bounce back to the uh, to the ship, and then the uh, The object that has been found is is converted into something visual that we can see in the screen, which I'll show you in just a minute. And this is the first thing to do, to search the ocean floor with sonar, looking for possible targets. um, This device is a sub-bottom profiler, which enables us to get a reading below the ship of how much sediment has accrued on the ocean floor since the... Time of the glaciers uh, when it was when it was in fact uh, uh, if in, if possible when when the uh, when the, uh, sh- the the beach area shoreline was 450 meters uh, 450 feet below or if not how much sediment has a, has accumulated in the last several millennia and this will enable us to do it unfortunately it only takes a very small reading it doesn't cover a large area and we do not have a uh, sub bottom profiling yet available to us that can go down three, four, five, six meters underneath the ocean floor and find targets. Such equipment I hear does now exist but it hasn't reached us yet. I, I think it's still the um, used by navies of the ocean for uh, navies of the world for various purposes. Another type of, uh, of a sea sled which is a sonar device we use as well. So we do what we do is we spend usually usually at night, back and forth over this area, doing it systematically, uh, making sure that our, our coverages overlap so we don't miss anything in the area of interest. And then notice all the targets that were found in this one area. Uh, by the way, geological stuff, is that's a, that's a uh, scientific term we use. <laughs> <laughs> Talking about you what we think of it. Uh, our geologists aren't very happy about that. But in this one area, we found many targets. Visiting the targets to confirm what they are takes time, but that's the next step. And there are people who are very good, I'm certainly not one of them, but specialists who can read side-scan sonar images. This is a idea, this is a sub-bottom profiler image, but more importantly are these images. And notice here, we have, clearly we have a target. Most of the ocean floor, deep water, anywhere in the world is simply mud, and it's like this, it's barren. So when something like this comes along, something's down there. Now, it's not for me to tell you what it is because I can't do that, but there are, there are folks that we have on board who can rule out a lot of things and they can help us prioritize the targets that we do find because we don't have time to look at them all. Uh, I have found it particularly disconcerting to realize that sometimes schools of fish will swim in ship-like formations. And then when you go down to look for what looked like a fantastic target, there's nothing there, and you go back and forth and back and forth, and you finally realize it was those bloody fish again. Now, when targets of particular interest are are identified for examination, we do something like this, and here's, notice this one here has a very clear shadow, and it's about eight meters long, that could be a line of amphora. Could be something else too, but it was that. That looked really good. And again, it's fairly deep. In fact, it was beyond the debt working depth of our submarine, but it was very important. So we decided to take a look at it. I'll get to that in just a minute. Uh, one of the devices we send down after we have located the targets and the targets have been analyzed and we decide that A is better than B and we've set up a list of targets that we need to explore we send down a remotely operated vehicle. It's a submarine with a, pardon me, it's a robot with a cable to the surface so that it provides real-time information to those of us sitting up on that nerve center, or I should say the nerd center where we all sit looking at the uh, computer screens. It has sonar devices, it has cameras, it has a little arm that can actually lift something up. This is very important because it does give us a view of what's down there. And very often that will be enough to say, well, it's not something of interest or it's another Byzantine shipwreck and we should move on. So this is the next phase of our search. And then uh, another device that we use is a submarine, two-person submarine, a little yellow submarine. Some of us don't get to live in one, but we can certainly dive to the ocean floor in one. Um, It's an interesting uh, piece of equipment. It has, as you can, uh, there are five thrusters. Uh, This other hole here is, takes two people. It uh, has a large uh, plexiglass bubble on the front. It has uh, various types of equipment on its arms. It's got different types of cameras and video. This is a, an arm with a suction device that enables us to lift pottery up and place it in the basket if we decide to do so. And we have permission from the, F, the F-4 of antiquities to do so. We will do it. And uh, here's our pilot, chief pilot, a man named Kostas who is going through his checklist just like a pilot would before the submarine starts out because it is not connected to the surface and if something were to go wrong it could be awkward. So the checklist is important for him to follow. I was very reassured before I took my first dive that any any machine that has duct tape and plastic ties I know is good because like most of us who work in archaeology with a Leatherman instrument and duct tape and plastic ties and super glue, we can fix the world. So <laughs> I was very reassured, which was a good thing because, uh, I'll get to that in just a minute. You see inside, two people here, how crowded it is. It's very cramped inside. There's a canvas covering the, uh, the uh, bubble until the last minute because that's the most vulnerable part of the submarine. And here I am sitting in, it's getting ready to go. Uh, a trip uh, down to the ocean floor. I had a little video of you of this But unfortunately, that didn't work. But let me back up and I'll do it here then. On my first trip uh, in the submarine, I was a little concerned. I've been diving for a long time, scuba diving. And as some of you are divers, you know that things can happen even when you're diving. But usually if you're calm, you can figure out how to deal with the issue. And thus far, I've been lucky I'm here uh, after about 40 years of diving. Diving in a submarine is a little different. (laughs) Something goes wrong. There isn't much you can do about it, particularly if you're 600 meters below the surface. You're, you know, you have to rely on your equipment. You have to rely on your machine. So before I got in this thing, I had some pertinent questions to ask Costas. Electric batteries, okay? How much time do we have on the electric batteries before we run out of charge? Ah, don't worry. About seven hours. How long can we stay down? Well, we usually stay down not more than five hours. I did the math. That sounded okay. stops. what happens if the batteries fail? Don't worry about we have a redundant system. So they that. How long do they last? Another seven hours. I thought that's fine. Next question. This is a pressurized bubble so we don't have to worry about decompressing. How much air supply do we? have? Wow, we have seven hours. What happens if it fails? We have a redundant system for seven hours. Now I'm really, you know, like most of us here, I like to breathe with some frequency. What happens if the redundant system doesn't work? We have scuba tanks. We can get up using these. Okay. I was reassured. Now, if something goes wrong, what happens? Don't worry, the other system will kick in immediately. You won't even know the difference. Fine. So my first trip down with Costas. He was, I discovered later, this was his fourth trip as pilot of the submarine. And we got down to about 200 meters. And uh, by that point, we've lost about 450 feet, I guess, is about right when you, no, not that much, about 350. 100 plus meters is when you begin to lose your ambient light in night train. After that, it was seriously dark. And for the sanity of the people inside the submarine, there's a tiny little light out there. I don't waste too much in terms of batteries. Just to remind you that everything is okay. You can't see a bloody thing, but there's a light, and that psychologically helps you as you start your ascent. When you hit the bottom, then the power goes on and the lights go on, you're, you're able to see about 10, 12 meters. And then beyond that, nothing. Now can't imagine what that's like. You're fortunate enough, I was fortunate enough, to see sections of the ocean floor that no one else has ever seen. I have the sonar readings, I know that there's nothing out there, or nothing of great excitement out there. But nonetheless, the other part of it, my personality kicks in, and I'm just excited as can be. What is out there? We're going into the darkness, we're seeing something that no one has ever seen before. It's exciting as it can possibly be, So much so you you forget about the fact that you are trapped inside of this little bubble, and if something serious was to happen, you'd be in big trouble. Uh, You lose that. And I guess the funniest thing that's happened to me that I hadn't expected was a large uh, squid was cruising along with a current, having a wonderful time, and smashed right into the bubble. It was a big animal. And instinct, ink went everywhere, and it, didn't, it looked like he sort of was stunned a bit, as he should have been. Uh, he was moving fast, we were not. And then he swims off with great stories to tell his family that night. <laughs> the aliens almost got me. I ran into the mother ship, but I escaped. Uh, but other than that, nothing of great excitement, but always the possibility of something. Now, on this first dive with Costas, they said about 200, uh, about 200 meters, I guess, that we were down. All of a sudden, the lights, begin to flicker and they go off, total darkness. I'm calm, I sit there and wait I know the redundant system's gonna kick, kick in, it will kick in, it will kick in, it will kick in. And it probably wasn't more than a minute, but it was like an eternity, so I'm starting to think, well let's see now, can I make a free ascent from 200 meters? First of all, if I got the door open, the water would come crushing in and I'd be finished anyway. This could be it. Then the lights started to flicker, and they came on. And I turned to him and said, "I think we should go up." He said, "That's a good idea." So <laughs> up uh, uh, There had been some condesa- condensation had gotten in. He hadn't quite done it right because he was new, and no, no serious problems. So after this, I always asked Costas, uh, I think I'll show it to you in a minute. What do I? What do we do? Uh, well, anyway, I'll get to that in a minute. The drill is: this is lifted off the back of the ship, dropped into the water, the submarine and the, the captain has picked the exact spot so that we are going to be swept away from the ship when ropes, attaching ropes are, are taken off, and the captain will move out in the other direction, so there would not be a chance of the submarine smashing into the back of the ship. A Greek scuba diver, uh, equivalent of what a uh, U.S. Navy diver called a SEAL, uh, is assigned to this project. He jumps in to take off the ropes, and he's doing that just right now. And then after that, the submarine floats free, getting ready for its dive. Notice, those who read Greek, it's called—it's named Thetis. It is the mother of Achilles, one of our ROVs, remotely operated was called Achilles. So I'll keep it in the family. Um, it's quite an exciting moment as you, uh, you're off on your own. The only contact you have with the surface is through radio contact. And uh, you are going to be down there for three, four, five hours. It's, it's a very exciting moment. And as you begin beginning to go down, we still have ambient light here, but this was very important. After having that one episode with Costas, where the lights failed, I thought of something else. Kostas, what happens if something happens to you? And what if you have a heart attack? What do I do? And he said, Bob, this is the magic handle. Pull this one and you'll come to the surface maybe more rapidly than you want, but you'll get to the surface, that reassured me, that reassured me. Now here we are, uh, this is the, the uh, console we're looking at, and notice in the top left 622 meters, the safety level of this vessel is 600 meters, but we were looking for that target that you saw earlier, it was 622 meters and we're down below, and all kinds of bells and whistles are going on. There's a depth 610 telling us to get up, get up. We're beyond our safety level. And I said, us, what do you think? You, how deep have you been? He said, 622 meters. I said, okay. Uh, what do you think? He said, well, we're here, uh, but maybe we shouldn't go any further. And I said, okay, that's okay. And it turned out we were able to see the target that we wanted to see. And it turned out that wonderful, deep, or uh, well that, that area which, looked, which I felt would be a line of it st- turned out to be a sinkhole, a methane sinkhole, methane gas was pouring out and what had happened is it attracts a certain type of bacteria, and the bacteria attract shrimp and what we 're looking at were just m- thousands and thousands of shrimp that had lined the uh, uh, the sinkhole, giving it more definition, and in the middle of the this pocket of Methane gas and shrimp were two of the biggest, happiest groupers you ever saw in your life. They had found the good life. Uh, it didn't require very much to find lunch, tea, or dinner. It was wonderful. And here the, uh, uh, the Thetis is moving in on a wreck site, a uh, photograph taken from one of the ROVs, about to lift a pot and with a suction device lifting one. Again, we're very careful about uh, lifting anything. Oops. I guess I can say, don't ask me about the extension now. All right. Oh, I know what it is. It's coming up with the, uh, I had a little video. We're not gonna be able to see that. Uh, uh, that'll make it go away, go away. Shoot, good. Um, even lifting one pot, we always leave something down there to tell whomever might follow us that this pot has been lifted And again, having the director of the Department of Antiquities on uh, the underwater uh, uh, ephora on board with us was very helpful, because anything that was lifted would then become her responsibility, and the preservation and conservation of the pot would be done by her people. But to bring one up for identification purposes, but also leave a marker so um, we would know exactly where it was taken from. These are, I had some embedded videos here, uh, but this is essentially the story of my one of my trips down. Notice before going, there's always an opportunity for perhaps the last photograph. <laughs> uh, waving guys, and then off we go. And then the photographs, the three photographs are the sequence of the, of the submarine coming up. It comes up, to get down, I'm usually asked this, to get down to uh, 620, to get down at 2,000 feet, how long did it take? 45 minutes for the submarine to go down because you don't want to use the thrusters to get down. It's, you, know, you have, those of you scuba divers, it's like having a buoyancy compensator. You just let the air out, let the water in, and you sink slowly. And the reverse comes up. Again, the craft can be lifted and lowered by using the thrusters, but you don't want to use that kind of electricity, um, so that kind of power. So coming up, you do the same thing. You push water out slowly by inserting a dedicated air source into the buoyancy tanks and the submarine lifts to the surface. So. 45 minutes, an hour and a half to get down and back before you even start working. And as you see, the submarine is very crowded. There are very few amenities in the submarine. And uh, bodily functions become a concern after a while. And uh, I don't know how others deal with it, but I consciously dehydrate for a day before I go down on one of these things so I can last for five hours. my personal care physician thinks I'm crazy to do it this way, but I assure him that there really aren't any alternatives. It's got to be done this way. So here we are coming back up the, surf, the What happens when you come to the surface, you, before you're 10 meters below, you let out a whole bunch of air, bubbles all over the place, so that the captain of the AJO knows exactly where you are. You don't want to come up underneath the ship and he will maneuver to pick you up then and again, uh, Vasili's the seal comes over and hooks up the, uh, the lines and then sits on top of the submarine on the way in. This is a, uh, also, and then at this point in time, after you have reached the surface, the first time you've done this, you go through an initiation rite. This seems to be universal now on, uh, for all oceanographers who use submarines. Once they have gone down the submarine rite, you are in a sense, welcome to the realm of Poseidon with a bucket of water over your head. Uh, you know it's coming, but it's part of the ritual. And it's well worth it because you are joining a very small handful of people who have had this opportunity. I might mention that just like concerns we are having now with how we should move ahead with our space program, should we use manned craft or should we use robots, this also is an issue in oceanographic research. Uh, it's great to send someone like myself down, but I'm the archaeologist, and what happens in the case where we found those shrimp and the methane seep. That was very unusual. We got it on video, but it would've been better that time if the biologist had been there. Or we found some coral, again, growing at uh, 600 meters. It wasn't supposed to be there. And uh, the <coughs> biologist was really excited about this because he had himself a nice paper, but he wasn't in the submarine to see it. All he could see was the, was the video. When the submarine is going down and when it's down five hours, that's about everything else on the ship kind of comes to a stop. That's not very efficient use of time. So we are moving more and more to the use of robots. It makes more sense. They do not sleep. They don't have to worry about going to the bathroom after five hours. Um, So it probably is better. So I think that I'm sort of, I'm lucky to have done this because the next generation of researchers will probably not have as many opportunities to enjoy a little yellow submarine that's yesterday's technology okay uh guaranteed that we have just started this process and i i will guess based on my readings talking with people who know a lot more about the ocean floor than i do that within the next five decades at the most we probably will have visited and seen most of the important shipwrecks of the world's oceans no matter how deep they are That's how quickly we are going to be able to do this. What we do with them, how we handle underwater material cultural remains, lots of political questions to be solved on this one. We're not sure yet. A lot of different views on how this should be done. What about commercial archaeologists versus scientific archaeologists? The commercial archaeologists, the salvers, are so far ahead of us now in terms of the equipment they have available, those who collect antiquities and then sell them on the market. How do we deal with this? Do we simply hold up a cross and hope they go away like like we drive away vampires? Or do we figure out a way to work with them? Some interesting questions ahead. But the next five decades, boy, we're going to see some exciting things. I'm sorry I'm not going to be around for all those five decades to take part of this, but I'm also happy I've had a chance at least to begin in the beginning of this to get my fingerprints in the beginning of establishing protocols for how to do this work. What's ahead? Uh, some Some of tomorrow is already here. This is a much more sophisticated, remotely operated vehicle. That's been developed by Woods Hole and Bob Ballard for work in the Black Sea. He's also done some work for the U.S. Navy with this. This enables him to do amazing things. First of all, the quality of images is so much better. And notice here, he's actually being able to do a test probe on a shipwreck in the Black Sea. This very sophisticated, expensive piece of equipment, and yet the critical component of it is Paintbrush that you could buy in a hardware store. Doing very delicate work. Perhaps using equipment like this and expanding it, it may be possible someday to excavate an entire ship in deep water. But we're not there yet. But something like this can tell us a great deal. We can reveal a few planks. We have a great idea of how the ship was constructed, and we know enough now, and we'll certainly know more in the next few decades about ship construction and the evolution of ship construction to be able to come up with a rough date just based on how the planks fit together and how far the mortise tenon joineries, the, uh, the, uh, the, the plugs, the wooden plugs, dowels are, the trennels. Uh, a lot of information can be gained by just doing work like this. We also are using, beginning to use AUVs, uh, automatic underwater vehicles that do not have cables to the surface. They cannot provide information back to the research, the mothership, if you will, the research vessel in real time, but they also can cover much greater distances. They can be programmed, for example, to take sonar readings 50 meters, uh, stay 50 meters above the ocean floor, and that the AUV, no matter what happens, if it's a rising hill or a deep crevice, they will in fact stay 50, 50 meters. They can be much more accurate and making their turns and coming back to make the kind of search pattern that we want uh, using a cable. Let's say you've got 5,000 meters of, of cable out. How difficult that is to control for the pilot because they're going to be all over the place. It's hard to stay on a straight line. This is going to be much, much better. Still some problems with it, but not tomorrow. There'll be no problems. It'll, be, it'll become perhaps the major device. And here's us in a submarine. I was able to take a picture of him as the AUV was going by two different technologies in a sense. He's in the one that's about to be replaced and outside is the new machine that's going to do the job. And uh, the latest thing that's out there is a hybrid remotely operated vehicle. This uh, has been tested the last two years by Woods Hole and as you can see, look at the depths here, 35,000 feet, 11,000 meters. You can operate either with a very small optic cable to the surface, or it can function as an autonomous vehicle. With this piece of equipment we are now prepared to look at the deepest parts of the ocean of the world. We've got the equipment. Archaeologists will not have access to this for a while, but it's there for other sciences and eventually we will. So, exciting things ahead. Just beginning. It's just started. As I tell my students, this is going to be as far as archaeology is concerned, I think it's the final frontier of archaeology on Earth. I quickly add that. As a fan of the science fiction story Star Trek, I know that Jean-Luc Picard was an astroarchaeologist as well as captain of the Enterprise. Maybe that's for my great-grandson or my great-great-great-great-granddaughter. I don't know, but it's ahead. So, I end by just starting where I began. The future has begun. Now I must end, I've been the longer I wanted to, but bear with me, I have to show a fish picture. Marine archeologists, you have to have a picture of fish. So I have one. This animal is not found in the uh, Mediterranean yet, probably will in the future, but now it, it's, uh, it's a, uh, an animal that one can find in the Red Sea where this photograph was taken. It's a large, it's in the ras family. It's called a Napoleon uh, ras. They're large animals. They can get as large as this podium. And uh, they're, I, usually I've noticed that on a coral head, one ras will, the largest one, will take over the coral head and drive all smaller ones out. So in other words, they're very ter- territorial. Diving at Ras Muhammad, I hadn't realized that uh, the Egyptians had allowed divers to feed fish down there now as a way of keeping, bringing them in. I don't think this is a very good idea, and I was totally unaware of this when this ras came up to me, swimming right next to me, and we were having a nice little relationship. Uh, but he was clearly thought that I had something to give him. My wife was diving with me, and of course I was trying to get her attention by waving wildly so, so she could come over. And the fish mistook these motions and came over and grabbed my hand in its mouth. Here's an animal that makes its living crushing coral. It did quite a number on my hand. It was like having your hand caught, you know, someone slamming a car door on it. And then he wouldn't let go. So he's swimming along, and he's looking at me saying, this isn't an egg. And I'm swimming along and saying, let go of me, you stupid animal. So I started punching him this way. And then it got even more, you know, his eyes are rolling in his head. It took him longer than it should for him to let go of my hand and away it went, and my hand did recover, but it was bleeding rather badly. Now obviously, I had my camera, but when I had one hand in his mouth, and one hand I was punching him, I couldn't take a photograph of it, but I was lucky. My diving buddy that day was an ancient mosaicist, and he caught the whole thing, <laughs> there I am. That's my fish story, and that's the end of my talk. Thank you very much.